This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on age-related macular degeneration. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. According to the World Health Organization, age-related macular degeneration is the third most common cause of visual impairment worldwide. As the population ages, it is likely to become more common. And of course, the main risk is advanced disease and resultant visual loss. To prevent this, it is important we get diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about the problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Dr. Sajid Mahmood, consultant ophthalmic surgeon, medical retina specialist, an honorary clinical lecturer at the University of Manchester. And importantly, Sajid is author of our BMJ best practice topic on this condition. So Sajid, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is this condition? Thank you, Kieran. Uh, age-related macular degeneration, it's, uh, it's, it's the most common cause of irreversible sight loss. In the uh, in the Western world, uh, you mentioned that it's the third most common cause of sight loss worldwide. Uh, but the more common cause of sight loss, like uh, cataract, that is actually a treatable condition, uh, whereas macular degeneration, uh, if it reaches a certain point, uh, it, it can reach a point where patients have lost their sight and it's no longer treatable. Now that has changed in recent years. Yeah, the underlying problem is a degeneration of the uh, cells at the uh, at the macula, and um, this can occur in two ways. Uh, we classify macular degeneration into two types: what's called the dry type and the wet type. And dry degeneration you can consider essentially the aging process. The degree to which different individuals are affected can vary, and uh, um, the degree of sight loss can vary depending on the severity of the condition. But essentially, it is an atrophic process where there's cellular death and degeneration. And if that occurs at the central, central part of the macula, which we call the fovea, that's what causes the most severe uh, sight loss. That's actually the most common form of macular degeneration. Uh, less common, but still a major problem in terms of uh, site loss is wet age-related macular degeneration. Now, this accounts for about 20% of all uh, macular degeneration. Uh, the difference is, though, it's uh, a much more uh, rapid and aggressive process. Uh, so in this process, there is abnormal growth of blood vessels from underneath retina. The layer underneath retina is called the choroid. And these blood vessels can grow. They can spread um, into the layers of the retina. Uh, these blood vessels can bleed. Uh, damaging retinal tissue, uh, and as the blood vessels spread, they then also uh, start to scar up, and that does further damage as well. Fluid can also leak out of these blood vessels and accumulate in the retina. So all of these processes cause uh, damage to the site, and that damage can occur at a much faster rate than you would see with dry degeneration, which is a much slower and gradual process. The, the studies on wet macular degeneration uh, show that um, on average patients can lose about three lines of vision 
on uh, on a standard uh, site test charge over the course of a year. Okay, thank you. And concentrating on age-related macular degeneration, how do you make the diagnosis? So to diagnose the condition, uh, we may get typical, uh, the patient may display typical symptoms. Uh, in in the case of dry degeneration, it's, it's a gradual reduction in vision over time, which can't be uh, corrected even with uh, uh, optimizing the patient's uh, glasses prescription. In the case of wet macular degeneration, the patients may experience vision loss, but they may also experience uh, a new, a recent onset of distortion of vision. Uh, as the fluid accumulates in the retina, it, it distorts the normal retinal anatomy, and that translates into symptoms of things that should look straight, looking wavy, feature, you know, features in the central vision looking distorted. Uh, and um, uh, you know, when, when that comes on suddenly, that should that should uh, trigger a suspicion in the mind of uh, um, a clinician who sees that patient, whether that's a general practitioner or an optician. And um, certainly once that suspicion is, is triggered, we confirm the diagnosis using testing. Uh, we have um, uh, a way of now visualizing the retina uh, using non-invasive testing, uh, a device called uh, optical coherence tomography, OCT scanning. And um, this is becoming, well, this is the uh, main way of initially making that diagnosis. And uh, uh, previously that was only available in the uh, hospital setting, but now many optometry practices have these devices in their practice as well. Not universal, but many of them uh, are offering, have, well, have the option of making, uh, doing the test and making that diagnosis. We then refine the diagnosis further, if necessary. Uh, using angiography. We have modern modern OCT scanning devices can actually do a non-invasive form of angiography, um, but, his, but historically we would uh, take photographs of the retinal circulation after injecting a dye uh, intravenously. And that's becoming uh, less necessary, but in some patients still to, to be certain of the diagnosis uh, and to be certain of the, um, the optimal treatment uh, for it, uh, we may want to do angiography as well. Okay, thank you. And how do most patients present? Do they, concentrating on age-related macular degeneration, do they present with symptoms or is it something that's picked up routinely on an eye test? Yeah, so in the case of dry degeneration, that is a slow process and patients might think their glasses are... Uh, need changing, and uh, they're just struggling a bit more uh, with their vision, struggling maybe with uh, their vision in low illumin low lighting, uh, finding it harder to drive, uh, and 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 it'll be things like finer activities and small print that goes initially. So that more often tends to be picked up on routine testing at the optician. The wet macular degeneration. Now, interestingly, there is a variability here. It's more likely that patients will notice sudden changes in their vision and uh, and, and may go to their uh, optician or, or their general practitioner on a more urgent basis, or may even turn up the uh, hospital eye casualty. Uh, sometimes the vision change can be quite dramatic and um, they'll want to seek urgent attention. 
Having said all that, we do unfortunately also see patients who remain asymptomatic because the odd thing is when vision is lost in one eye, uh, the good eye can fill in the gaps. And with both eyes open, a, a significant proportion of our patients don't realize anything is happening. And, um, and often they might actually then seek attention um, by, by the time, by which time they have quite advanced disease and it's much harder to treat or even untreatable. So uh, that scenario we still encounter, although the majority of patients uh, will be picked up because they've got symptomatic vision loss and we'll, we'll get them at an earlier stage when there's potential for treatment. Okay, thank you. And I wonder how commonly does it affect both eyes? So dry age-related macular degeneration, it's a bilateral condition. It may be asymmetric. Wet age-related macular degeneration, the, 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 estimates, the estimates vary. I would say a simple estimate from, from studies that are available is that about 10% of patients who have wet age-related macular degeneration in one eye go on to get it per year in their second eye. So, so roughly after you know after about five years or so, about fifty percent of patients will have it in their second eye. And um, um, it, but but the but the figures are variable. I would say of the patients that I treat, the total cohort that I'm treating, currently about twenty five percent are having active treatment in both eyes. And this is obviously at varying stages in their disease. Uh, some having recently developed the disease in, in one eye, and some who've had the disease for a number of years. But if I was to if I was to give a patient an estimate, I would say it's not it's not inevitable you get it in both eyes, but a significant proportion do. Okay, thank you. That's very helpful. Last question on diagnosis: What would you say are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? Well, the the difficulties we have, firstly, from a patient point of view, is lack of awareness of the condition. So they might have come to their optician and thought uh, and been told that they have a different condition like cataract one year. And they know that that's, that's a problem that, that's going to uh, progress and worsen with time. So when their vision does worsen, they assume that it's, assume it's a condition they already had. And so that can lead to delays in presentation. Uh, also, uh, if, if, uh, uh, if a practice doesn't have uh, OCT scanning, and is relying on just direct visualization of the retina to make a diagnosis. That can be difficult, especially if the patient has other conditions like cataract, which, which obscure the view. And sometimes the signs can be subtle, and, and the only way to detect them is, is with OCD scanning. So if you're depending purely on direct visualization using uh, equipment that we've had historically, such as ophthalmoscopy, then that's not that's not reliable necessarily uh, for this condition due to the variability of the presentation and and then uh, in conditions in, in scenarios where you do have the OCT scanner and uh, you think well I've got the, I've got the device now that should give me the diagnosis the there can still be an issue with interpretation of the images and um, uh, uncertainty regarding um, um, uh, other conditions that uh, that cause similar uh, similar effects on the scan, such as uh, uh, such as um, uh, well, the retinal vascular conditions that also cause fluid buildup and fluid accumulation in the retina. Uh, and interestingly, also other conditions that mimic the disease and look like wet adrenal macular degeneration, but actually the variants of the dry form and don't benefit from treatment.
And so we can be in a scenario where, where patients might be really suspected that they need treatment or are referred for treatment, and actually they don't need treatment. These are all the, these are all the various scenarios that, that I end up encountering in clinical practice. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to management. What would you say is the mainstay of management? So I'll tackle it in reference to the dry form and the wet form. And uh, so dry degeneration, what I advise patients is that uh, uh, realistically, it is a form of aging, form of wear and tear. And um, there's no active medical treatment as, as such that we can currently give. Yes, things are being studied, but there's no active treatment currently available. What we do advise patients is that um, good diet uh, can uh, uh, can slow deterioration over the long term, and good diet in a patient for dry adrenal degeneration. Uh, I, I would summarize that as um, uh, um, um, foods that foods that are rich in carotenoids, so lutein. Uh, these are these are lutein, zeaxanthin, uh, and um, Foods rich in those are vegetables, dark green leafy vegetables like spinach, kale, uh, vegetables that are bright in color like peppers. So instead of orange peppers, uh, but all types of peppers uh, are also rich in rich in these ingredients. Uh, eggs are good. Eggs have something called uh, eggs have lutein in them, uh, which is which is also good. And uh, uh, so I recommend patient my patients to have an, an egg a day, increased vegetable intake in their diet. Uh, and um, uh, also to discontinue uh, smoking because that's a strong risk factor for progression both of the dry form and the wet form of macular degeneration. The uh, other thing we can advise is lifestyle measures like wearing um, uh, dark glasses uh, in, uh, in sunlight uh, and then really to be on their guard uh, because dry macular degeneration can convert to wet macular degeneration so to be on the lookout for symptoms that could suggest uh, um, a conversion to the wet form. And based on that point I made earlier about um, not, know, not noticing one eye, um, uh, the vision change in one eye, uh, I advise patients to check their, eye, check their eyes individually. And this can be, we, we can give them uh, what are called Amsler grids. So uh, the... These are widely available from optometry practices and from charities like the Michael Society in their information booklets. The uh, ANAMS grid is a grid which, which helps you to detect distortion of vision. The patients can do that if they're, if, if they're able to do that and uh, are particularly keen. But, but I also say, look at, look at your surroundings, look at, look at straight objects in your surroundings like edges of doors, window frames, tiling, that sort of thing. Uh, and that can in itself be used um, uh, to look out for symptoms. Uh, wet iterative macular degeneration, the mainstay of treatment for that is uh, pharmacological. Uh, since 2008, we have had, uh, we have had uh, uh, drugs that are injected uh, directly into the eye. Uh, it's called an intravitreal injection. The injection is delivered into the central of the vitreous cavity uh, inside the eye, and um, uh, what the the action of, of the drugs that we use is to counteract chemicals that are that are built up, uh, in, and uh, and promote blood vessel growth, promote progression uh, of uh, wet macular degeneration. 
So the first drug that, that came out uh, in 2008 was called ranibizumab. And um, uh, that had to be given monthly uh, or, or, or given with monthly review uh, guided by OCT scanning. And then later on, treatment regimes were developed to try and give that uh, in a more tailored way to the individual using what's called treat and extend treating and then extending the interval according to the individual patient. Around 2013, we had um, uh, approval in the UK for a, a treatment called aflibercept. And um, uh, this was adopted because the treatment regimen was two monthly after the first three monthly injections rather than uh, the dosing we had before with ranibizumab. Uh, and overall, it, 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 um, uh, it, has, uh, it, is, it has been shown to have a, a, a better drying effect on the retina uh, than ranibizumab with, with an incremental benefit in terms of uh, the, the dosing and the, uh, uh, the, the, frequency of the, uh, the frequency of dosing and that a patient might need, although efficacy is similar between the, between the drugs. And then, uh, more recently, uh, we had a, uh, a drug approved two years ago, uh, sorry, actually three years ago now, uh, called brolucizumab. And um, the potential advantage of that was that even more patients could go for a longer interval between uh, doses. And uh, in, in, the, in the studies that came out, patients were, after their first three monthly injections, more than 50% were going to three monthly dosing. And that showed potential, but um, it's now really a second line treatment because uh, it had a higher rate of uh, inflammatory side effects uh, than the existing drugs. So it, it never really took off as a first line option. It, uh, um, uh, it, but it, but it, I, I have used it on many patients as a second line option and, and with good effect. The most recent treatment to have become available uh, is a drug called Farisimab, and uh, that was actually uh, just approved in the UK uh, around middle of last year. So it's, it's quite new on the scene and uh, just been uh, incorporated into clinical practice. The potential advantage is that the drugs historically target vascular endothelial growth factor. Uh, Aflibercep targeted um, uh, uh, vascular endothelial growth factor and another uh, molecule called placental growth factor, and um, um, uh, this farisimab. The, the, uh, the the idea is it would have it would have more efficacy and longer acting effect because it's also targeting another molecule, uh, and that molecule is called the ANGIA two pathway. So without going into the, tec the technicalities, the idea is that it's it's got a dual mode of action, and um, the clinical trial data is is promising in that uh, uh, in that the clinical trials show a high proportion of patients, about seventy five percent of patients, achieving twelve weekly or longer, up to sixteen weekly dosing, uh, and, and still achieving uh, similar benefits to well equivalent benefits to uh, the existing um, the existing existing drug aflibercept. Now. All this is very exciting and it's available now and approved for use. And um, uh, we just have to integrate it into clinical practice and see if those uh, those results seen in clinical trials are actually seen in 
uh, in routine clinical practice. But it's good now that we have so many different options and some patients may not respond that well to one drug, but we have the option to then try them on alternatives that we have available. Okay, thank you. And what about pitfalls in management? What would you say are the main pitfalls in management? So um, one common pitfall, which I alluded to earlier, is interpretation of our imaging. And uh, there are variants of dry macular generation, which on an, on an OCT scan uh, could be misinterpreted as wet age-related macular generation. So we have to be careful that sometimes patients may be receiving treatment uh, who may not be benefiting because the, the diagnosis was wrong from the outset. And uh, I think as, as our awareness and our ability to interpret the diagnostics has improved over time, I think that is improving. Um, but I still see some cases like that. Uh, and sometimes we might be uncertain of the diagnosis and the treatment is almost given as a trial. So we'll say, well, you're showing features of the wet type of macular degeneration. We can't be 100% sure. We know that if we don't treat you, the disease is going to you know, get worse and uh, affect your sight. So at least as the option to to see if you do benefit uh, uh, from a trial of treatment. And, th and that's perfectly reasonable. And something something we often have to do. The um, uh, the other uh, thing we have to keep in mind is is variants of wet age-related macular degeneration, and um, uh, some types that might need a few treatments, but some types that need lots of treatments. Uh, in particular, what's increasingly being recognised is uh, something called polypoidal disease, which is a variant of wet macular degeneration. Uh, and, and in this condition, uh, it's the venous circulation that um, uh, becomes abnormally dilated, almost like a varicosity uh, within, the, uh, within that circulation. And um, uh, treat, those patients benefit from the, 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 probably benefit more from the newer, uh, newer drugs rather than the, the older drugs. And we may also, in those patients, need to do additional diagnostics. We have, I mentioned angiography earlier, but there are different types of angiography. The, the most common one is called fluorescein angiography. Uh, but to identify that, that condition, uh, we may have to do a, a, use different agent called ICG uh, angiography. And, and if that confirms the diagnosis, we, may, we, we, we know that that it's going to be a more difficult condition to treat. Those patients can have very, very large bleeds or at high risk of vision loss. Uh, and in some cases, we may need to use laser as well as an intramature drug therapy. Uh, and we have different types of laser. Uh, and the, a laser that was being used for wet macular generation in the early 2000s called photodynamic therapy, uh, and which has really fallen out of favor now as a, as a standard uh, treatment can be used in combination with the injection with, with the drug injections to achieve better results in those patients and i guess the other the other pitfalls are more practical in that uh, we have a condition in which we have an effective treatment and um, it's not a straightforward single one-off treatment it requires uh, regular review uh, regular diagnostics and realistically unless the disease progresses to despite treatment these patients are, are on treatment for life so 
in treatment services, we are uh, we, there's an ongoing process of accumulating patients, but less of discharging patients, and then this then causes a buildup of um, uh, demand on our units and um, a need to have the capacity to deliver the treatments, uh, deliver appointments, you have the infrastructure, the staff, and this this has caused uh, uh, a strain on eye departments over the years, and, and it varies how well they've kept up. Some departments are very good at keeping up and delivering the treatment on time, but I know that many do struggle, and when you struggle, then you don't get the treatment on time, and then that affects your outcomes. Uh, so you know, the, the, these are the issues we face. We hope that with the newer drugs, with the potential for longer acting uh, effect, then this eases the burden somewhat. But again, it's it's it's, it's, uh, uh, it's the the demand on these services still grown over time, despite the drug developments and tr- and developing treatment regimes. Okay, thank you very much, Sajid, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.